Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanty Show live at Capricorn. Woo! Woo! Hope, not just for rich people. <laughs> I'm Sean. I'm Jen. And we're here with Brandon O'Brien, one of the guests of honor at this super awesome, fantastic convention. Hi, Brandon. Hi. Capricorn Forty One made me do a thing. <laughs> that, I like how you phrase that. <laughs> I I steal it from Brandon on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So. But you should probably copyright that. Perhaps yes, or just copyright thing and like the arrangement of other words in the sentence. Precisely. Exactly. But yes, yeah. I'm actually. Should... I want your next poetry book to be called "I Did a Thing." I mean, that was almost the poetry book that's about to come out, so yeah. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> but I, I do want to say thing. I do want to say though that I'm actually very honored to be at Capricorn forty one. Uh Sean knows for a fact that I wanted really badly to be here last year and things couldn't happen, so I'm really glad to be able to join you all this year. Yay! Yay! Well Where Jen, are we? you we're literally at your part. Yeah, this is the oh. part we normally edit, and then Jen messes up the whole script, and we have I to- I mess up the whole script, yeah, and we have to on, start over again. Keep going. Just kidding. <laughs> so, today we're here to talk about the power of science fiction to explore the present and uncover hope. Or, to put it another way, we're recording a live podcast about Capricorn's 2021 theme, creating the future we want, just, you know, by talking about dorky things, which I thought what Capricorn was all about in the first place, but, you know- we're dorks, we so are. that's what we do. So if you're listening live, um, make sure to send in questions um, as you have them into the chat, or you may raise your hand if you would like to speak it directly. We are recording, so your voice will become part of the internet. Um, but yeah, so questions as we go, uh, please have them up there if you like. Uh, but yeah, I think it's time for us to get this uh, show on the road. It is. Yeah. So Where are we going with it, though? Where are we going with it? Well, I'm going to tell you because that's my job at this part in our script for the show. Uh, <laughs> so we're talking about this idea about science fiction more broadly, uh, having its a, this ability to make us think about the world in which we're living in now and possibly to find hope. Uh, and that can come in a lot of different ways. And I want to actually throw this to Brandon first. And I want to ask him a very general question that we can start with, which is really this big idea. How exactly does science fiction help us to uncover more positive visions for our future? What what makes it a genre that's so useful for that? Uh, well, uh, as a genre, uh, I would argue that one of the things that makes it best suited for uh, those kinds of optimistic views about the future is that it gets us to ask questions about the future in the first place. Um, it's very easy for us to get um, trapped in our idea of the status quo uh, that just the idea of asking a what-if question about the world that removes something that causes us pain or adds something that could potentially improve our lives um, is a very good um, path into uh, doing more radical things, not only in that work, but in real life. Uh, I actually had a panel earlier today about um, solar punk as a genre, and about how, uh, even just as an aesthetic, uh, solar punk acts on the assumption that uh, if that there is a potential way in which we can create our societies that is greener and more um, energy efficient and more eco friendly, 
um, and then just continues forward from that premise. And the idea of continuing forward from that premise is also the idea of uh, asking the audience to think about what their life would look like if they didn't have to think about uh, a particular kind of worry, or if they were now asked to imagine something that could potentially improve their lives or make their lives easier or more or uh, less painful, even in some instances. Um, and while I think that the genre has the capacity to do so, I guess my follow-up question is: How often does it fulfill that as deeply as possible? That is a big question, and uh, I have an answer for it that Jen is going to hate, and I don't care. Uh, I'm going to so hate it. You're going to hate it, and I don't care, I hate Jen. everything that you hate do, it. though. So hate it all you want. That's fine. <laughs> so, I think for me that I have this somewhat, you know, flippant saying about science fiction, which is that, you know, on a fundamental level, any science fiction in which humanity is still around is fundamentally optimistic. And I know that sounds really kind of pessimistic, but the reality is our capability as a species to totally wipe ourselves out exists tenfold plus. You know, we could literally go into a nuclear war tomorrow and there would be no humans by the next day. We could kill each other off. Uh, that's entirely possible. We're destroying the planet right now as we speak, which could potentially make our lives very difficult to live. The fact that a lot of science fiction and most and almost all of science fiction, humans are still around. They're still, for the most part, living what we might refer to as lives uh, makes it to some degree a little bit optimistic, given just how capable we are of destroying ourselves. Uh, and we've seen it over and over. We, we love to kill each other and to blow each other up and to murder and maim and do horrible, horrible, horrible things to each other. Uh, it's almost as though it's like just part of human nature and it's a horrifying prospect. And I, I say that a lot of times flippantly because I do have this sort of like weird philosophy as a human being, which is that if I wake up each day, I've already kind of met my bar of success and that everything past that that's a positive is just an addition. It becomes, you know, that day's already great for me. You know, today I woke up. I'm not dead today. Uh, that's a good start. Uh, because the alternative is like, you know, this is I know that like a lot of people are like, you know, my students, for example, are very young and like almost every student I get coming in now doesn't even really know what 9-11 is. But there was a time in Jen and I's lifetime in Brandon's that like we really thought that we were going to annihilate ourselves like humanity was going to be annihilated off the face of the earth. That was a distinct possibility. And we're still here. I think it's interesting uh, that that's what you're coming in with. As a cancer survivor, I imagine that, you know, that that philosophy is owed a lot to your experience surviving cancer. So, yes, waking up every day is a positive. I want to push back because I, I agree with both of you to the extent that, you know, there is stuff I think that exists. Obviously, solar punk you know, is one of the genres of science fiction that is absolutely imagining better futures, at least environmentally. Um, and I also think that science fiction that imagines us still existing is very optimistic sometimes. Um, I think I have less 
of like I was a kid when I was a kid we were doing nuclear drills sort of thing right and I mean like that's when I was really really tiny then it turned into earthquake stuff and you know so on and so forth that's California um you know when the big one struck that was for ours myself it was 1999 1989 earthquake it was gigantic and it was terrifying and there was definitely that moment of oh well that's just it that's it we're done um but i think part of my problem with the history of science fiction is that yes some of it imagines that we will exist in the future um I mean, science fiction in general, that's what it's about, the future. So we exist. Yay. But so many of them are just about white people existing in the future and able-bodied people existing in the future. And that is definitely not the future that I want to exist in. Because even though I am a white woman, that is, that's not the future I want. I, I don't want anything to do with that future. And in fact, I will be the person on the sidelines of that future trying to overthrow it. So these days, most of the time when I am actually finding a path forward, it's unfortunately very destructive. Um... What I'm looking for a lot of the time, or where where I'm finding the most hope, is in books that either imagine some type of destruction taking place, or are just past the destruction taking place and are that better future. But it's not a future dominated by white people. In fact, these are books not written by white people, they're written by, by POC. So that's where I'm finding the way forward in science fiction, because I think a lot of the time what happens is, as regarding this question, does it fulfill that promise? And I still think there's just so much science fiction that does not, because it is still not imagining an inclusive future. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I want to kind of pick on something that you, you said, Jen, um, because it, it made me think a lot about one of the problems that I think I, I found in a lot of science fiction that that attempts to kind of give us some kind of a future. You know, most science fiction is really about the present. It's just interpreting it using the trappings of the future, you know, technology, et cetera. But, you know, you mentioned this thing about how so much science fiction, you know, imagines a destructive path towards that. Um, even Star Trek, technically, right, because there's World War Three that finally gets us to the Federation, right, regardless of which timeline you happen to be in. And it, it does worry me that that is the common thread that we, that our only way to get or, or the most common way for us to imagine getting to more inclusive or or just in general, a future that is somewhat more enjoyable to be in is to have some kind of very destructive event to happen um and i don't know if we if i mean i'm sure there's narratives that don't do this but so many of them do and that that worries me because it while destruction is one of many ways we get to change uh, whatever we want to describe it change it can be good and bad um surely we need to start thinking about how we get that without destroying things 
Or do you mean destruction in a less... I'm thinking, like, literally, like, blowing shit up. <laughs> to be oh, clear. Oh, no, no. I, I'm 100% talking about blowing shit up. Got it. Okay. Or revolutionary uprisings. But I'm saying... I didn't say that that's the basis for a lot of science fiction. I mean, it may be the basis for a lot of science fiction. It is. I'm finding... I'm finding that the hope that I am, or the books that I'm finding the most hope from are not written by white authors imagining destruction, but are written by BIPOC who are imagining some type of destruction or uprising, whether or not it's violent or not, but a distinct shift in the paradigm. That's where I'm finding hope because it's not white people destroying each other it's by POC destroying the systems that have shut them out entirely. That's where I find hope. So it's not necessarily that I'm like, I think that the only way we can find hope is through violence. I'm saying that right now, the thing that is bringing me hope is that those futures are being imagined in a destructive path because of the fact that we just had in the United States a whole new president come into power and I'm really happy about who became president. But at the same time, that president is still a center moderate and there are still, he is not going to do anything about so many parts of American society that result in the death of BIPOC on a daily basis. He's not going to be throwing out police. He's that, He's not throwing out our incarceration. So there are so many things that are going to stay the status quo, even though we have, theoretically, a much more helpful version of a president. The things that need to happen still are not going to happen at any type of pace that starts saving lives tomorrow. Like, we're still seeing kids in cages essentially right now and they're taking their time on that which should have been something that happened immediately so this kind of speaks to another thing that i think is important in the question uh like we we are essentially very slowly defining several parts of this core question um, so now that we've defined um, speculative fiction in terms of what it's capable of, we now have to define hope. And the curious right. thing about that, def- <laughs> and the curious thing about that definition is, it is always in relationship with a kind of despair. But the way that that despair manifests is different depending on your personal context. Uh, like, the reason why things have to, like, be blown up and wars have to be won and lost before um, some um, white male imaginings of science fiction can imagine what the future could look like po- more positively is because the status quo, f- for want of a better way of describing it, was neg- wasn't negatively affecting them up until something else had to happen. But the status quo as it stands negatively affects a great deal of marginalized people all the time. So we don't need more suffering in order to put that in context. We can start from now. Um, So I guess the question then becomes, as a result, well, what, what, what especially right now do we consider the desperate things that we need to respond to more hopefully? 
Uh, one of those answers is obviously um, political hostility in the United States because that uprising was a lot. I'm, wat- I'm watching it from the outside. I did have this like moment of pause where I went, the negative ramifications of this will obviously affect other people in certain ways for a very long time. Um, but there are also other things. Um, what are some of those other things then? And how lo- how have those other things already manifest themselves in some of the speculative fiction that we're already seeing? I mean, I don't know if this is manifesting in the speculative fiction that we're already seeing, but I think, like, given the year we've just had, um, you know, attempts to imagine futures in which governments are competent, which sounds, I know that sounds like the lowest damn bar for a government, and yet... No, it sounds really high it, right now, And yet actually. it is an oddly high bar. It is an absurdly high bar, uh, which is banana pants. Uh, but yet this is the, the condition we're in, and, and I would love to see more science fiction not just whitewash this away. I'm, I'm using that term because I don't know what another non-racial version of that would be. Uh, but not like wash this away and pretend that we don't have a serious question right now of how we have, uh, you know, in so-called free democracies, and I'm using quotation marks because some of them aren't so free, um, how we have competent government response and cultural response to global problems that aren't just pandemics, you know, food shortages, water shortages, uh, you know, all kinds of issues that may arise that affect lots of people all at once. Um, global warming comes to sure, mind. Sure, global warming. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to have visions in science fiction that that say, look, these problems are very big. They're very scary. And we, we seem like we can't fix it now because in some cases it seems like it's just not. But we can. We can get there, and it's not going to be perfect, and some of those solutions are not going to be solutions that are fun, but we can do it. And that's what I want more, I think, out of a lot of science fiction. You know, I was I was thinking of, like, I was watching Altered Carbon. Altered Carbon's a lot of fun. I like that show. It's pretty good, but it's also, like, a show where if you're trying to imagine a future in which, like, mega corporations don't basically take over and ruin lives constantly forever and ever for hundreds of years, it's not the show for you because that's the vision of its future. And while it's it's great to kind of imagine dystopias, my concern is that sometimes while we think about dystopian imaginations, um, we're not thinking about them as warnings. Rather than, you know, like we need to have the warning as well as, you know, like the solutions. And and I'm not saying that science fiction can predict the solutions in, to any accuracy because it, it really can't. But it can give us possible visions of things we can think of that do offer solutions, right? To say that these are problems that can be solved. They're not insurmountable because I think a lot of... And I I don't know how Jen or or Brandon has felt from the last year, but I know like at times I felt last year of just like, I just need to unplug and walk away from this because there's nothing I can do about the problems that are happening in the world. And it does feel at times hopeless. And I think science fiction has the potential to say, no, it's not. It's hard. It sucks. It's going to take a lot of work, but it can be done that it's not hopeless. But I I don't know how how either Brandon or, or Jen feel about that. I read a lot of romance. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll be perfectly honest. That's where I had to turn to for my hopeful happy stories. 
Um, which is which is fine because I don't necessarily turn to science fiction for my hopeful happy stories. Um, I turn to it for the, I guess, the struggle of getting to that better place. And some of them are in the midst of that struggle, which is, you know, helpful in some cases. I don't know if it's necessarily, like, where I see or find hope, but it is helpful. And I think that on its own can be part of finding hope, is finding the, the guide, what are they called? The, the, not the goalposts, but just the guideposts on the path towards a better future. Mm-hmm. And so, but as you said, Brandon, you know, it's like so much of of science fiction imagines the destruction because it otherwise doesn't affect things don't affect white people in their privileged spaces. So where what gives us some hope in terms of how the future can help the marginalized or, you know, what can we have and imagine for a future in which marginalized people are at least given a chance without and and you know hopefully become privileged or rather that we're all in the same equal footing right mm-hmm. and and i and i will say that i'm seeing more and more of that in terms of disabled bodies existing in the future um pass forward in terms of assistive devices but also just general respect <laughs> like without the hand waving um like oh the you know the magical cure which is a huge problem for um portraying disabled people within science fiction and fantasy is that there's often these hand wavy cures i am seeing more less hand waving moments i mean the fact that we saw, even if he's totally in the background, a person in a wheel, a wheelchair user in the background of Star Trek Discovery Season 2 was mind-blowing. Absolutely, completely mind-blowing because that was not necessarily a thing before that, except for obviously Captain Pike once he goes through his terrible future experience. Um, but this was just an officer going through life with a disability that hadn't been magically cured and everybody seemed to take, you know, like, it's just a thing. And oh, by the way, all these corridors are wide enough for wheelchair users. Imagine that. That kind of thing. Even those little pieces that that I find occasionally, unfortunately, still, um... Those are the things that I'm like, oh, there is hope. We we can see these people. And I think it, it falls to sort of the why representation matters so much in science fiction. Because if you can't see yourself in those futures, then you're never going to find hope mm-hmm. in them. Yeah. Um, One of the things that uh, stood out to me, and I mean... 
I can't, the years have been so long that I can't even remember when this show ended. But, um, when you said that you were reading a lot of romance uh, books to cope, I was trying to flash back into all of the things that I had actually consumed. Because I spent a lot of time either finishing things that I thought I would enjoy, or rewatching things that I've already rewatched four and five times in order to get that kind of joy. And I found myself in this very contradictory place in terms of three things, which is I rewatched a lot of leverage because um, seeing a, a bunch of uh, Thieves with a Heart of Gold um, stick it to corporations on a regular basis and be very clever and witty while doing it is a lot of fun and very rewarding. Um, I spent a lot of time watching over, uh, rewatching a lot of um, my favorite police procedurals, even though I found myself actively not enjoying it, and being heavily critical about those things now because now I'm watching it with the um twenty sixteen to twenty twenty Black Lives Matter awareness that these are not the ideal ways to deal with the growing frustrations of marginalized people why are you constantly assuming that black people and latino black people and latinos are selling drugs why are you constantly um putting young women as your initial um dead body in this murder of the week on a daily basis um and that curiously led to 2021 being the year of more police procedurals actually attempting to answer questions of systemic inequality and racial profiling in their shows in ways that differ from the very, very good to the frustratingly bad, but at least you tried here is a gold star. Um, which is like a completely different, con- which is completely a completely different story for a completely different panel. So I'm not going to dwell on that. And then the third was, and I still can't remember when the show ended, finishing Shira, which I have a lot of feelings about. I do not think that Shira is perfect. There are individual things about the way that Shira ended that I actually hate. But at the end of the day, the ending of Shira is still a community of people gathering together and deciding none of this is ideal even for our oppressors, so we're going to bring this to an end. Which I thought was particularly fascinating on a story level. And, like, wanting to see that fulfilled, being committed to the idea of seeing that fulfilled, was part of the reason why I still got joy out of it. Because, at the end of the day, I think that that is the vision that I am, like, aiming for, ultimately. Stories that remind me that when you gather with like-minded people and do grassroots work, not with the goal of simply destroying evil, but by replacing something um, evil with something good and sustaining, um, that is the kind of message that we need to be giving more people, and that is the kind of message that we need to be reminding people who want to do the work. Um, And it felt at that moment in time that in terms of TV, that was one of the few things that was at least ending with the hopeful note of not simply destroying evil, but replacing su- replacing something evil with something good and sustaining. Totally agree with that on a number of levels. 
And just really quickly, because I mean, as I say, where I have been finding hope is destruction, right? But that isn't a positive message necessarily. It's just where I've needed to be and what I've needed to see to find hope in this last year of total trash fires, right? That where at times it seemed like the only way forward was the complete destruction of old systems. And I still think that we do need the complete destruction of old systems. The goal then becomes how do you destroy the old systems in a way that doesn't enact violence? That's the big question because I, I think I've, I can't remember who who was who had said it but you know it's probably a common phrasing but this idea that like you know revolutions are very important but you know this person like abhors the idea that there are all these innocent people that get caught up in revolutions who just want to live their lives and not be oppressed but also not like you know blown up perhaps depending on the the style of a revolution that could happen um and I, and I think that's really interesting. And it's something that, you know, while Star Trek, how we get to, like, say, Star Trek Discovery, which Jen and I have spent a little bit of time together with riding bicycles, um, you know, Star Trek Discovery does ha- still have some of that early basis that some bad things have had to happen to get us to this point. But it's worth noting, it's also a long period of time that has happened after those bad events. And while Star Trek Discovery doesn't present perfect future by any stretch it's not even perfect in its representation per se to go to jen's point um, or even perfect in how that world works right it does really hammer home this idea that you know we can overcome incredible horrifyingly big problems by adhering to ideals that are you know wide-reaching inclusive powerful that are about you know our our central goals are like this unified goal of a whole bunch of different peoples all saying we all are seeking the same basic things and rather than sacrifice those like season 1 is really about like whether or not we sacrifice those ideals uh season 2 still has some of that but it's now much more about like how do we how do we keep these ideals in the face of even increasingly more terrifying and confusing problems um and i'm sure season 3 which we haven't watched continues this um all of that is like there is something like really hopeful about the vision that's presented there that I think Star Trek's always tried to present to some degree. And I know Jen and I, we've had conversations before about the imperfectness with which different series have approached that. And it's certainly been imperfect, but I think it's really important because it's trying to give us those possibilities that aren't totally rooted in destruction, which I think I, I, in a lot of ways, Jen, you and I do agree that we, we tend to have destructive personalities a little bit, uh, you more so. I think, um, yeah, uh, this is why Jen doesn't have access to the nuclear weapons for the show. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, Brandon, you didn't know about those. I, I didn't tell Julie you. Julie noted. But, thank you. Yeah. But hey, whatever. I totally believe in <laughs> nuclear disarmament. Yeah. <laughs> but like the alternative to that, that I was thinking of was like the expanse, which. Mm-hmm is much messier, you know, but, but over the course of those four seasons, you know, it, it, I think like it compared to Star Trek, 
the expanse is much more interested in the the ebbs and flows of humanity like we make a little progress and then we take a step back and make a little progress take a step back which maybe isn't the ideal way of how we want things to go <laughs> but is the way that humanity is we, we we take a long time to get to where we need to go uh, but i like that the expanse tries to explore that by saying like you know there are all these big social problems and a lot of people want to fix them, to make them better, to improve upon them. And there are always going to be lots of different interested parties that maybe want that to happen for possibly not so good reasons. And sometimes also people who don't want them to happen for also not so good reasons. And then lots of people in the middle trying to hold it together. Um, but it's also a show that's dealing with like some of the Star Trek things of like, well, sometimes you got to set all that bullshit behind because a big asteroid is about to crash into an Earth and literally kill everybody and we have to like stop and actually say no like survival of people is actually more important than our political stuff uh, or whatever our disagreements are it's not a perfect presentation but i really like that the expanse explores those things mm -hmm. i haven't um caught up on the expanse in quite some time um i've been meaning to because i remember uh finishing season one um, getting somewhere in the middle of season two and enjoying it a lot, and then life kind of happened. But um, I do agree with you in that I think one of the things that I love the most about the Expanse is, from a protagonist level point of view, it is the story of a group of ordinary people who are just trying to work and get paid and eat and live being aware of the fact that their work has political implications and that they need to resolve those political implications, but they're doing it not just for themselves, even though they admit that they want to just work and uh, eat and, and live, but doing it for the sake of other marginalized people just like them, because they know that those other people have no one to vouch for them. But now they have been put in a pos they 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 have been put in a possible situation, however tenuous and fraught it may be, to be uh, a potential source of their hope, and they will go out of their way to do it, even when it becomes unnecessarily fraught for them on a regular basis, um, which. It, which not unlike Shira, exactly. It gets back to that uh, community thing of no one asked you to do this, and we know that this is a lot, but you still decided to do it because you still understand that there are people who are experiencing the same kind of suffering that you are, and you've put yourself in a position to try to alleviate that, even when you know that it's at, it's at great personal cost. And the thing that complicates that in comparison to stuff like Discovery is that. Starfleet is still an organization. Starfleet is still an authority. It's still making authority decisions on a regular basis. It's never really looking out for the little guy. It's looking out for its own capacity very often. And I I feel like that will be a lot clearer in season three. And I think that that question is very interesting, but it doesn't doesn't feel the same if that makes if the, if that makes sense. Yeah, like you're kind of getting to a, a thing that I, you know, I think why I like Star Wars so much in a different way, because Star Wars is on a much grander scale than The Expanse. But, you know, because The Expanse is, a, a lot of The Expanse is about individuals taking action. It's not about like a lot of big governments doing action, although big governments do act, but most of the show is about individuals doing stuff. Um, and Star Wars often is about that same thing. It's about people 
you know, in some cases, very everyday people like Luke Skywalker, if we take him, you know, he's literally a farm boy from Tatooine who just is obsessed with converters and all of these things, right? And he goes into space and becomes a hero and he joins all of these big, larger than life people. But there's something like really comforting about the idea of, you know, these people who are going up against incredible odds and know that the chances of them succeeding are small but are deciding that the the consequences of doing nothing uh, far outweigh their own individual lives. And so they sacrifice, potentially, to sacrifice themselves anyway. And in Star Wars, right, the big heroes tend not to die. But you see that sacrifice in other stories. I mean, even like Lord of the Rings. Like, I, I don't know why there's something super hopeful about when the writers of Rohan show up, knowing they're all going to die. But they're going because there's a sense of honor and duty that we must try anyway, even if we're going to lose. And it's the same in Star Wars, right? That big heroic effort, the epic effort. You know, we're going up against an empire with infinitely more resources than we have. Like, they literally have the money to build two different Star Destroyers, for God's sake, right? We've got, like, a bunch of rickety ships and, like, Bob's, like, meat factory, you know, and that's what we've got to work with. And yet we're still going because the consequences of doing nothing are too great. Yeah, I think that's um, best displayed in Rogue One for all that a lot of people hate Rogue One. It's actually my favorite Star Wars movie at this point. And because I think that's what you see is a small group of individuals who know they are literally sacrificing their lives for something that could result in the fall of the empire and so they're willing they're completely absolutely willing they don't kvetch about it they just do it be because they are the ones that can do it um and i think unfortunately that in a lot of the other star wars films there's just too much of that legacy of the skywalkers behind everything that happens which is why we get to things like Finn getting completely sidelined and not becoming a Jedi, even though he absolutely is a freaking Jedi. Please, let's just admit it. Um, <laughs> I have a lot of feelings, so, just like you, so yes. So many feelings, so many feelings. We got so much good in number eight at the end where a little kid could be dreaming about becoming a Jedi. And oh, by the way, he totally is. And it was completely destroyed by the last movie. Thank you, Star Wars. Uh, no, it was not. That little kid could still be a Jedi. <sighs> yeah, okay. One can, Sorry. <laughs> one can only hope. One can hope. Yes. Unfortunately, Finn doesn't become a Jedi, so screw you, Star Wars. Okay. Anyway. Sure. My point. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> So I, actually, I hate talking I... about Star Wars with Jen because, like, honestly, I could reach through this computer right now and throw yeah, you know, down an icy hill. You still like Han Solo, so no, I like Han Solo because before he we'll became our. We're not loser. going there. No, you started it. You brought there. this upon yourself, you monster. One of these days for this podcast, I'm just going to make a sign that says "Older brother and older sister are fighting again." <laughs> Um, but I kind of that would be fair. But I do want to follow up very quickly on an, a thing that I have just noticed as well, which is also kind of noteworthy for this discussion. Which is, a lot of the examples that we have just made also now have another thing in common, which is that there are all these stories of people who are prepared to die for their beliefs. Yes. 
which is not really the best outcome, but also... Because the... I think the, the willingness is important. The willingness to fight. The willingness to do what you need to do for other people that do not have the capabilities to do so. It's like... During all of the the protests this last year and and before, in which disabled people knew they couldn't show up at the protests, but they still were lending their voices to the movement. And that was important. But it was also important that there were people on the front lines taking the actions that needed to be taken in order to not just expose, but to fight against oppressive systems. So, you know, obviously I the death shouldn't be necessary. <laughs> it would be really great if it wasn't. Yeah. And hopefully we get more visions uh, of things like She-Ra, where they succeed and nobody dies. Yeah. And everything gets better, sort of, except if we have to rehabilitate some villains along the way, and maybe that's not such the best thing. I so. mean, they don't die, but they do sure go through a lot. They go through a lot. So much. I, I wonder... Like, oh, go ahead, Brandon. No, I just wanted to say, like, part of the reason why that's noteworthy to me is it isn't, like, in comparison to the real present day world that we are observing through this speculative lens it isn't wrong or improper to say that people are in fact ris- risking their lives people are uh risking their lives to um make themselves available for other marginalized people when it might cause them to lose their jobs people are risking their lives in a literal pandemic in order to uh, keep people safe and alive um but the thing that rubs me the wrong way about presenting that as the only way in which this work can happen is that it often presupposes that the marginalized must be ready to sacrifice their lives in a space where their lives are already forfeit instead of asking what allies are supposed to do. And it always uh, presupposes that the ways in which we will lose our lives will always be violent in a certain kind of way, it always be physically um, brutal, even when systemic violence is often enough for us to suffer, and we don't see that uh, interplay as often as possible. I I think that's a really important thing to remember, and I think that's part of the reason that the books that I've enjoyed and found hope in this last year have been by by POC and they're imagining futures in which they survive and other people don't and <laughs> and I'm good with that because so often we ask for their sacrifices their actual death and the world just keeps on going and you're like well hopefully it changed but all of these marginalized people had to die in the process that kind of sucks like why, why didn't a bunch of white people die? So when I'm happy and finding hope, it's when a bunch of white people die. And so, I mean, we're we're right at the end. So quickly, I just wanted to point out a few books that, like, actually have been doing that for me. And the first one is Toshi Onyabuchi's Riot Baby. 
which is a very, very difficult read because you get to read about what Black Americans face on a day-to-day basis and the cycles of um, death, police violence, um, crime, and all of these abuses, lack of education because our education system sucks, you know, just literally everything about what happens in America to black people, especially black boys in urban settings, you know? And then you get to the end and, oh, by the way, they're going to destroy everything. And it's literally about (laughs) leaching out the poison that white people have left behind. That's the future. And so when I read that, I'm like, yes, that's what I want to see more of. But at the same time, you have something like, speaking of communities as a whole, because that one's a brother and sister, is Moon of the Crusted Snow by, uh, I'm going to say his name wrong, but Wabgisha Grice, in which there is an apocalypse, but it, it only affects the small community of Anishinaabe uh, people that is already cut off largely from white society, except for shipments. And so it's basically about them finding a way to survive in the way that they used to before white people started shipping too expensive goods to the one little grocery store in town. But, oh, by the way, all the white people have died in that one, too. Bummer. Um, so, <laughs> I might be white, but that's where I'm finding hope right now, because I'm finding hope in communities of color finding paths forward. And if that means that I lose some of my position in life, I'm actually okay with that right now, because the alternative is that more by POC keep dying. Mm-hmm. So, okay. I, well, I will I'm just... Gonna... Oh, go ahead, Brandon. Real I quick, wa- and then I yeah. I, yeah, I just wanted to note very briefly that at least I can I at least kind of speak for myself when I say, um, I have no attachment one way or the other towards white people dying, but I would love it a lot if white privilege died. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> there is a distinction <laughs> there. I don't want yes. more bodies, but uh, if we could like solve the key problem, would be great for me. Just want to let just want to let that be stated on the record. Continue. Yeah, I- and I think ca- I think okay. that happens in both books, but there's still a larger destruction at place, and so I'm I am speaking more of the metaphorical death of white people. As opposed to no, the you're not. Death you you I... no. You're oh, like God. no, kill Whitey. Let's do oh, it. God. That's Hold what you're sign. doing, you liar. Hold up the sign. Oh my God. <laughs> Jen's face. I'm just not going to respond to that. Good oh, Lord. Okay. All right. Uh, before we close out, um, I, I will say that um, if you're interested in a space opera that uh, centers primarily the voices of Caribbean peoples. Uh, Tobias Bacal's Xeno Wealth Saga is a really good one. Uh, it deals with empires and stuff, but mostly aliens. Uh, but it it the primary characters in that story are uh, descendants of Caribbean peoples. 
uh, which is pretty awesome, which you really need to read. It's fantastic. Um, Crystal Rain's the first book, which isn't is more centered on a single world, but the the series opens up as it goes along. Um, it's pretty cool. It's a great series. Go see it. But I think we got we got to stop because we're we're basically out of time here. So that means we got to do our normal closings out. So um, thanks everybody for for joining us for what was supposed to be a much more hopeful conversation than I think we ended up having. Um, <laughs> but you know what? We got some hope in there. Yes. That's my fault. I'm sorry. I think, not sorry. I think we accomplished a lot of good this evening still. Excellent. Yes. Well, uh, we appreciate you all being here. So uh, continue down the script, Jen. Okay. Sorry. You're not very good at reading the script. Literally, we have 30 seconds. Go. <laughs> uh, thank you, Brandon, for joining us today. Tell people where they can find you super fast. Um, you can find me almost anywhere on social media, especially Twitter, at The Rising Tides. And I will be at the rest of Capricorn for the rest of the weekend. Yay! And you can find us at skiffyandfanty.com on Twitter, Instagram, or skiffyandfanty at Twitter, Instagram, and other places. And you should go to skiffyandfanty.com slash listener suggestions if you want to hear us talking about things. And then I'm at loop on Twitter and Patreon. And I'm at Sean, Sean Duke. That, that's where you can find me, on the Twitters. <laughs> and that's all we wrote for today. Sean, can you make it awkward? Yeah, so technically speaking, the only thing preventing me from resorting to cannibalism with you, Jen, is that I consider murder generally a bad move. But that hasn't prevented me from writing a cookbook. <gasps> um... I hope I'm delicious. And on that note, we're done. <laughs> Bye. Bye. If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or skiffyandfanty.com, our website, where you can get access to all of our fancy things. Our music comes from Holy Mole. You can support him and his work at patreon.com slash holy mole. Thank you for listening. <laughs>